You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. Well, my name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, if we've never met. And we've been in a series uh, on stewardship. It's called Entrusted, and uh, today is our uh, family worship Sunday, but we're going to go ahead and conclude uh, that series of, uh, of stewardship uh, this way. We're going to talk about what does it mean to steward the gospel. Now, the gospel is a message, so we're going to be talking about what does it mean to steward a message that's been entrusted to us, that's been given to us. Now, have you ever messed up a message that was given to you, that was uh, stewarded to you, and you you just got the message wrong, or you skimmed over the message, you didn't read it right, and it led you into a wrong place. A few years ago, I was visiting a community group in our church, and, uh, and I, so I reached out to the leader. Uh, it was the Bailey group. They lead a re-engage group on Tuesday nights now, and uh, at the time, it was a community group, and I was going to go to their house and visit this group, and so I got the email of the time, location, the day, and all of that, and I show up at their house. I saw a car, so I knew I had the right, I knew I had the right, uh, the right, you know, time. And, I, and then I looked up in, you know, I knocked on the door. Nobody came to the door, but I heard people in there. And so, uh, you know, I knew right house, all that. So I walk in and I walk down the hallway and it's just a room full of ladies. And uh, that was, I wasn't expecting a room full of ladies and they weren't expecting me because they collectively turned to me and they said, like, Pastor Rob, what are you doing in here? Like, this is a private meeting, and this is awkward for you. And they started laughing at me. These, these godly ladies started laughing at me, at their pastor, okay? So if you're new here, you know, uh, don't join our community groups because they'll laugh at you if you show up at the— I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. Obviously, I'm joking. But it was so funny, and uh, we all had a good laugh about it. But I did go back to my car, and I said, did I get this wrong? And uh, I was so convinced I'd read the message right. And I went back and read it, and sure enough, I had the wrong day. Right location, right uh, time, all that stuff. Wrong day. And so I had skimmed the message. I didn't steward the message well. I didn't handle it right. And we've all done that. Uh, we've all ended up in, in, in wrong places because we didn't get the message right. And as silly as that is, it just kind of reminds me that I have ended up in far, far uh, more stupider places in my life when I have messed up the message of the gospel. And I just assume things about the gospel, but I skimmed over it and I don't handle it well and then read it right. And so I've ended up in places of worry. I've ended up in places of anxiety. I've ended up in places of fear. I have ended up all, in all kinds of places when I took wrong turns with the gospel. And so what we're going to do today is just review the gospel. And I hope it's a review for almost all of us. It might be a, a, a discovery and a, a new message that you've never heard. If you are new to the church or new to the Bible or new to Christianity or, or new to this word gospel, what does that even mean? So it could be very new for you, but it, but it could be for a lot of us a review. And what that does, I hope, is that it moves you. If you're in a place of, of fear or a place of worry or hate or anger or jealousy or wherever you are, that the Lord would bring us back to this place of hope, a place of joy, a, peace, a place of peace, because that's what 
good news does. That's what the gospel means, by the way. It's good news. And so I hope that you receive and uh, review good news. So let's look at one verse together where the Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel. He summarizes good news in 2 Corinthians 8 through 9. And he says it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now we know that he's talking about the gospel because he used that word grace. Now over and over again in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, you know the the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this moment, he just uses the word grace, but he means the same thing. So he's talking about the gospel, and the context of this is he's encouraging people to be radically generous, to advance the gospel to as many people as possible. In in order for, for the advancement of the gospel to go forward, then and now, it requires extreme generosity and sacrificial giving. And so the way that he encourages them to just sacrificially give and be very, very generous in the gospel is just by reminding them of the gospel. And he does it very succinctly. He does it very uh, simply. Well, what does he say? He says, well, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's this huge reversal that he's talking about here. So that's, that's what we want to talk about today. What does it mean when it says that Jesus became poor? What does that mean? What does it mean when he says that we might become rich? And then how do we know it? Let's just take those ideas in that verse, ask the question, and answer it briefly. What does it mean he became poor? What does it mean that we become rich? And how do we, how do we know it? Well, let's look at that very First question, what is meant that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor? Well, notice the word there is became, and that is past tense, and it's very intentional because the good news is not something that we do in the present. It's something that's been announced about something that God has done in the past. The good news is an announcement. It's a declaration that something has been accomplished. And what has been accomplished is not going to be accomplished again. Now, it has an abiding result into the present and into the future. But it is an accomplished fact of reality that you can trust in. The gospel is good news that something is done, that something is finished. The gospel is not due. The gospel is done and never repeated and, and has this ongoing effect. William Tyndale, when he translated the word evangelion, he he says the word that we call gospel, he says it's a Greek word and it signifies good and merry and glad and joyful tidings. And all of that past tense that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and makes him dance and leap for joy. That's a dramatic effect right now in the present and in the future for something that has taken place in the past. Well, what's taken place? What's been done? What past event has that kind of effect on us? Well, we could go a lot of places, but in Philippians 2, Paul again summarizes what's been accomplished when he writes, and it's on the screen behind me, who, this is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, does something unique. He empties himself. That, that means he, he does not become less God, but he steps away from his glory and becomes the lowest servant imaginable. He serves us even to the point of death in the most humiliating way possible, the most humbling way possible, even death on the cross. This is the way that God chooses to love sinners is by humbling himself and serving us who don't deserve to be served even to the point of death. Now when Paul talks about that Christ, the king of kings, goes to the point of death and goes to the cross for us, he's talking about a death that brings about a peace with God that we could not have any other way. In the Old Testament... The way that this was done is through an atoning sacrifice. This word atonement is very, very important in the Old Testament. So the way that atonement works is that you have two warring parties. And a sacrifice is made that brings these two parties together in a peaceful way. Even in a loving way. But that has to happen through a substitute, a sacrifice that takes place in a transfer of guilt from one party and innocence of one party to the other. This transfer has to take place in every atoning sacrifice. The transfer has to take place. So in the book of Leviticus, we're told that you took a male lamb without blemish and the sinner or the worshiper would lay their hands on the head of the burnt offering and it would become acceptable to make atonement for him. And why does that become acceptable? Is because the sin was transferred to the substitutionary sacrificial lamb. My sin transferred to the lamb. And then the lamb had to die, or the animal had to die. And then the blood of that animal was sprinkled upon me as the worshiper. And so it goes on to say, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that makes atonement by the life. The power of the blood is the life, the innocent life, being put on me, over me, and therefore now I'm innocent, not because I'm actually innocent, but because of the innocence that's been poured and sprinkled over me, and my sin transferred to the sacrifice. That's an atoning sacrifice, and it brings peace. And the people of God had atoning sacrifices daily because you want to meet with God daily. And they'd have atoning sacrifices weekly, and they'd have atoning sacrifices monthly, and they'd have atoning sacrifices yearly. Their whole calendar was built around one atoning sacrifice after another atoning sacrifice after another atoning sacrifice. So then you fast forward to the book of John and the gospel, the good news announcement in the book of John is like John the Baptist announces this when he sees Jesus. He says, behold, in other words, everybody look, look at him. This one who is here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
he's basically pointing to there is one atoning lamb, one atoning sacrifice who's going to take away all the other atoning sacrifices. He's the lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. And that same gospel ends with Jesus on the cross as this atoning sacrifice. And do you know what he says on the cross? The last thing he says in the book of John before he dies is it is finished. In other words, the atoning sacrifice that I came to be for mankind is finished. I have actually done the work. I have in my death right now taken away the sins of the world. This is amazing. Now this is atoning. This is God in Jesus fully satisfying our sin debt to himself. Not partially, not halfway so that there's other atoning sacrifices that we need to make or some future sacrifice. Once for all, it is finished. It's taken away. It's fully satisfied. Our guilt is fully satisfied. Our debt is fully satisfied. And the the big million-dollar word for this, theological word, is the word justification. When you hear that, it sounds very legal because it is. It's a legal term. Justification means that God declares over us. Anybody today who puts their faith in Jesus Christ alone, he declares young and old over us a new and a permanent position with God. In another part, in 2 Corinthians, he says in chapter 5, he says, For our sake... For sinners who don't deserve this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, he was the innocent, perfect lamb who never sinned, who knew no sin, to be sin, past tense, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God right now, in the present and going into the future. We become the righteousness of God as his innocent blood is sprinkled upon us. And we relate to God in, our, in innocence, but the innocence of Jesus that's been sprinkled over us through faith alone. The good news of that is, listen, despite our failure to keep God's law, that's what sin is. If you've ever wondered, what is sin? Sin is our inability to keep God's law, to love him and to love other people. And despite our failure, and we've all failed to keep God's law. Every single person in this room has failed to keep God's law. And despite... Our inconsistencies and our weaknesses and our stumbling and ways that we feel like we're just not growing because we're just so weak in this area. Nevertheless, God has opened up an unchangeable and irreversible like line of credit in the bank of heaven where we draw upon his forgiveness and his righteousness anytime we need it. At all times. Despite my weaknesses, despite my challenges, despite my mistakes, despite even really fully understanding or even fully grasping that, I can draw upon this irreversible credit that Jesus has accomplished on the cross. The old Puritan John Flavel said it this way. He says this, if Christ, by dying, has made full satisfaction then God can consistently pardon the greatest sinner that believe. There's somebody here today, you're saying, I don't know how I ended up here, I don't know how I arrived here, but I am the greatest sinner in the room. 
And you might be wondering, how in the world could God ever forgive somebody who's done the things I've done or thought the things I've thought? Here's why God can forgive the greatest of all sinners. Because he is the greatest of all saviors. And there is no sin that his blood that he shed on the cross can't cover and can't redeem and can't, can't make innocent again. You can be innocent again with the blood of Jesus covering you. He can consistently pardon the greatest of sinners. That's the testimony of every single person in this room is that we're not righteous on our own. We are declared righteous because of the innocent lamb who was sacrificed for us. There are no good people in the room. There's only living people who've been made alive because of the life of Jesus poured over us and then put in us by his spirit. So you can come to Jesus. Kids, you can come to Jesus and you can receive forgiveness and, and new life. Uh, a couple years ago, I, well, I, last year I shared this uh, illustration at Rise Up Weekend about how I, uh, <laughs> I had these library books. We went to the library, it was like pre-COVID, and we checked out all these books. And we enjoyed them for about a week. And then we forgot about them. And they were just kind of scattered throughout our house like a lot of, a lot of us do. You know, you check out library books and... Uh, and then, anyway, they just ended up all over the house. And we'd forgotten about it because, you know, COVID hits and you're not supposed to go anywhere. And, and uh, we're not really good about turning stuff in like that anyway. Um, and so uh, we eventually get a letter from the library. And you know this letter uh, probably. Uh, the letter for us said something like, you know, kind sir, uh, can we please just have our library books back? You know, no, no judgment, no fine. Just please return your, our books back to us because we need them back. And so Michelle faithfully finds them throughout the entire house, and she gives me a stack of books. Um, I don't know if it was this big. Maybe it was this big, but it was a stack of books. And she said, Rob, you gotta, you got to turn them in. Um, she's the rule follower in the relationship. So she's like, you've got to turn these books in. And so I faithfully put these books in my bag because I had every intention the next day to take them to the library. But something happened that day where I got really, really busy, and I forgot to take them back, and I just didn't take them back. And it was heavy. The bag was heavy, but I was like, you know, I'll take them back the next day. And then something happened the next day. I was really busy. And then the third day, and then the fourth day. And then a week goes by, and I still haven't taken these, these library books back, but I just grew accustomed to them. I just grew used to them. That, that, I, I had... I, they were just now my friends, I guess. They were just in my bag greeting me every time I put my computer in and every time I pulled it out. So a, week's go, a week goes by and another week, this is embarrassing, and another week and another week. And sadly, like a month goes by. I feel judged right now by you. And then like another month, I'm sorry, but like, and I just, you know, it was one of those things, well, it's just, it's heavy. But it's just heavy to, I get to the car and I drop into the car. And it's just heavy till I get in my office, I drop it. And I just, you know, and I, I, I just had worked up in my mind that when I show up to the library, there's going to be a confrontation with the librarian who's going to, like, alarms are going to go off. And there's going to be a scolding moment or something. And I don't know what I was, you know. But really what had happened was I just grew used to it. I just grew used to carrying the weight of this burden around. I just grew accustomed to it. And here's the reality for a lot of us is that we 
we grow accustomed to and we grow used to carrying around weight and burden that Jesus has long forgiven, that has, he has taken on the cross, and they belong to him. And we just grow used to carrying them around. And for some of us, we think we should because it just feels right. feels right for me to carry this around. After all, didn't I do these things? Didn't I think these things? Didn't I act on these things? So you would affirm probably that, yeah, I believe that God's forgiven me, and yet I should bear the weight of that. I should bear the guilt of all of that. And, and the, the good news of forgiveness is that, listen, Jesus bore not only the weight of sin or the penalty of sin, but he bore the guilt of sin. And when I walked out of the library that day, no alarms went off. And, you know, and no alarms, no confrontation. I think the librarian just said, have a good day. And just let me go free. Yes. And you can drop the, 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 what's been forgiven, you can drop out of your bag and you can go free knowing that there's not going to be a confrontation. You can go free and you can go liberated. And, uh, you know, the odd thing was it felt weird for like a week because I just wasn't used to walking around with an empty bag. But I wonder if God's saying, I want, I want you to walk out of here today with an empty bag. And maybe he's saying, man, I want what I paid for back. And you can drop it at the cross today. That's what it means when he became poor for us. He loves us that much. What does it mean that we become rich? Because it says that through his poverty, we might become rich. Well, this huge doctrine of justification leads us somewhere. To be forgiven and to be declared righteous by God also means that we are found by God and we're adopted by God as an heir of God. So to be rich in the Bible doesn't mean that just God just drops a lot of money in your life. It means that you have an inheritance of a family that's never going to go away. And you have security of God as your father. Now Jesus talked about this. He taught this. And the way that he taught this was astounding. He loved to tell stories. How many of you, how many of you love stories? Everybody loves stories. Jesus knows we love stories. And so when he really wanted to get a point across, he used story and the power of story. And sometimes he would stack stories on top of another story with the same point to really get something across to us because we love stories. And so one time in Luke 15, he's telling the story of what it means to be loved by God. And he tells the story first. The first story he tells is of somebody who loses a lamb. And everybody can relate to the idea of, you know, losing uh, a sheep. And he says, a good shepherd actually leaves the 99 and goes after the one that's lost. And here's, he says, here's what happens. God is the good shepherd. And that when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Notice those three words, I have found. I found my sheep that was lost. Then he tells another story. He tells the story of a lady who has a coin and loses it, and then just sweeps the entire house because this valuable coin is lost. And he says, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, which is just an interesting way to celebrate 
discovering a coin. But she does, and she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And so then he tells another story. He stacks yet another story onto the other two stories. And he says, it's like this. He says, it's like a prodigal son who takes the inheritance, all the money that the father would leave him in his death and spends it in a week and it's gone. And all his friends are gone. He ends up in the wrong place. He ends up where he's not supposed to be. So he says, I'm going to go back. But I know I can't go back as a son because I've already blown that. I've lost that status. I've lost that privilege. I've lost that right. He comes back, though, to be a slave to the father. And the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. Instead of a a scolding, he gets a celebration. For this son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he is found. There's our word. In every one of these situations, something's lost. And the good shepherd, the good father, pursues what's lost. And then says, I found what's lost. And it doesn't stop there. It's always a celebration. There's always rejoicing coming around. What's been lost is now found. And it's God initiating the celebration. He says, rejoice with me. And it says, they began to celebrate. And this is why William Tyndale says, when we grab hold of the gospel, it makes our hearts glad. It makes us sing. It makes us dance. It makes us leap for joy because we discover again that I'm found by God and I have an inheritance with God and I'm known and I'm loved by God and there's a soundtrack happening right now there's music happening right now whether I can hear the music or not there's music happening in heaven where God is singing over the ones that he has found he's singing over you Christian he's singing over you sons and daughters Because he loves us and he has paid the penalty for that. And he rejoices over us. Over and over again in the New Testament, we're described this way. Paul Paul says, listen, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And the, the one big challenge that we have as Christians, that's why over and over again this language is stacked in the New Testament, is that we don't we don't naturally relate to God that way. We we, we want to go back into kind of a slave mentality. And he says, you're a son. You're a daughter. You're an heir of God. You are adopted by God. And you are permanently rich as an object of God's everlasting joy. And we've got to resist this urge to relate to him as if we weren't. As if we weren't heirs. As if we, are, we don't have this amazing inheritance. We've been made rich. We've been made rich. John Owen, when he's talking about this in the book Communion with God, he says, he says, the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you could do to him is to not believe that he loves you. You have, you have kids. You would say the same thing about your own kids. The greatest unkindness you, you could do to me is not believe 
that I love you. And God is the same way with us. He loves us. He's removed every obstacle, every barrier, and declares us in him, adopted as his heirs. We're objects of his love and his joy, and he desires us to walk in that and to step into that. And it's uncomfortable. But when we grab hold of that, we, uh, we experience that, that, that joy of our hearts that Tyndale talked about. Well, let's talk about what does it mean to step into that? How do we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's what he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, he says, if just by reminding you of this, radical generosity comes out of that. And advancing the gospel comes out of that. He says, you know the grace. Well, what does it mean to know something in the New Testament? Well, to know something means to understand it with the mind. But then it moves from the mind to trusting it from the heart. So you understand here and you trust here to believe it from the heart. You believe on it from the heart. In 1 John 4, it's on the screen behind me, John says it this way. So we have come to know and believe. We've come to understand and we've come to trust. But notice, there's something that you're trusting. and It's not yourself and it's not trusting in your faith and it's not trusting in your love. Notice. We've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. This is John's shorthand way of talking about the gospel. Paul talks about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. John uses the love that God has for us. Both are the objective things that God has done in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Where if that's the object of our faith, our faith will grow. Our love will grow. But that's not, we don't focus on our faith. We focus on the love that God has for us. I say all that because, listen, the good news, the gospel, is not our love for God. Some of you came in here today. You got, you wondered if I should even come in here today because where's my love for God? Maybe you were going through the singing and you were saying, I'm not feeling it. And God must know that I am not feeling it. Maybe you went introspective and you were trying to find something there. And the hope, the good news, is not our love for God. It's God's love for us. And if we put our focus there, our faith increases. God's declared love for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To believe is to connect to that, to trust in that, and to believe in that. So in 2023, you might say, how do I, how do I grow in my faith? Maybe you feel like your faith is weak. And you say, how do I do this? How do I grow in something like faith? Because it's hard to Wrap your mind around sometimes. Well, it's not by looking at our faith, ironically, uh, but by looking at God's love for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's by looking at the gospel and attaching your trust to, uh, to Christ and to what he has done. And the really, really, really good news to all of that is as much as we might desire that, to be convinced uh, of his love, Jesus wants it more for us. God wants it more for us. Jesus is eager to convince us of his love. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15? We, we usually quote 1 Corinthians 15 anytime we have the Lord's Supper. Well, there's a verse in there where it says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. What's that all about? It's Jesus 
wanting to convince people objectively of his resurrection to convince us. And Jesus is eager to convince us of his, of his resurrection and of his love. When the Spirit came down at Pentecost, it was a convincing reality. People could see the Holy Spirit has come. God has, has, uh, has stepped into uh, our world in a new way through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit convincing us of His love and comforting us and encouraging us of His grace and of His love towards us. Jesus loves to draw near to us. And one of the ways that He's drawing near to us today is through His words and through His promises that He has carefully preserved for us. And many of, many of the... Uh, of that through the Bible that's sitting on your lap in front of you or on your device or on your phone. These words have been carefully preserved for us. And through these words, through these words, we come to know and believe the love that God has for us. There's a trailer out uh, of, of a movie coming out in June. It's the final installment of Indiana Jones. Is anybody still tracking with the series, Indiana Jones? I'm, I'm still in. I'm still in. If Harrison Ford's still in, I'm still in. If we, if we change, I'm not in. But if Harrison Ford's in, I'm in. So I was watching this trailer this week, and at the end of the trailer, Indiana Jones says something that really summarizes the culture. And he says this. He says, I've come to, uh, come to the understanding that it doesn't matter what you believe. It just matters how hard you believe it. doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters how hard you believe it. If you're a middle school student or high school student, if you're an elementary school student, uh, it doesn't matter what really uh, schooling choice you go to. It's the air of the culture that we live in. We're told that all day long. It doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters how hard you believe it. And so what we are told over and over again is that faith, is a force. Faith is something, you know, if you understand it that way, is something that we create out of it or we manifest something out of it. So there's no absolutes, there's no objective truth. Truth becomes what I create or what I believe hard enough. I make something true based off my effort. And so you believe and you believe and you believe and you believe. And if, you, if you're really good at believing, you can kind of make Santa's sleigh go, you know. You have enough spirit, enough inertia, enough energy, enough zeal. That's what faith becomes for a lot of people, for a lot of young people. That's how they're understanding faith. And when the Bible talks about faith, they don't, it doesn't describe faith as a force where we create something. It's more like a rope. Faith is a rope that attaches itself, uh, itself to something that's true or attaches itself to something that's false. We don't make something true or make something false by a force from us. We attach ourselves to things that are true, and we attach ourselves to things that are false. And there's consequences to what you attach yourself to. I was watching a video this week of the tsunami that hit Japan. And if, if you weren't attached to something that was strong and steady, it didn't matter how nice your car was. It didn't matter how much energy you had when you were trying to run away. You were gone as soon as the water hit you. You were, you were gone, and the wave took you away. If you weren't attached to something. And I think of that because I think of our culture, and it's, 
It's just alarming how many waves of ideas are just going this way and that way. And let me tell you, young people are looking for something to attach themselves to. And they need to know, where is that? What is that? And what they're told over and over again is attach it to yourself. Because you're your absolute truth. doesn't matter what you believe. It just matters how hard you believe it. And they're trying to. And they're just being tossed this way and that way. And they're just desperate for something other than themselves to attach their faith to. And so I, I brought a rope up here to just kind of symbolize that that's kind of what faith is. Faith is like this rope. And I could unravel it, but it's just a, it's a really long, uh, long rope. But it just comes with this attachment at the end here. And uh, it's a kayak rope. And, and if you're going down, you know, a, a, a river... And uh, you get to a scary place, and you need, to, you need to stop. You have to have this attached to an anchor. And if this is attached to an anchor, and you drop that anchor, you're going to stop. And uh, if you don't, you will not. There's nothing you can do to, uh, to stop that. And so this right here, that's like, that's like your, your faith. And the question I would ask you is, what is your faith attached to? If, it's, if, it, if you're holding on to this, it doesn't matter. If that tsunami comes and you're holding on to this, rope won't do you any good. Your rope will not do you any good when, that, when the waves come if it's not attached to something that's strong and steady and firm. But if it's attached to something that's firm, it doesn't matter how, how, uh, how big this is or how short this is or how new this is or how old this is. If it's attached to something that's not going to move, that's unchangeable, you're not going to go anywhere. And so what we're trying to tell students and at the square is, uh, is that the tsunami waves don't stop because of your zeal. You need a rope, and you need to attach to something. So the week after Rise Up Weekend, we're doing something that's new for us, and we're calling them challenge groups. And we're challenging students to attach the rope of their faith to the anchor of God's word in a way that they've never done before. So we're challenging them to get three friends over three months and do three challenges relating to the word of God, anchoring your faith to that word, spending time doing some accountability, and then advancing the gospel to your friends. One of those verses that they're memorizing, some already have memorized, is Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers Fade, but the word of our God stands forever. That means as you, you take the, the rope of your faith and you attach it to the word of God and it stands forever. If you attach it to beauty, it's going to fade. If you attach it to, to the, uh, the grass, it's going to wither. But you attach it to the word of God and it's going to be an anchor. And so we, we, what we want them to discover is that it matters what you believe. And if you're attached to the anchor who is Christ, if you're attached there, it actually matters, surprisingly, how, 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 uh, how, how, how weak your faith is doesn't ultimately matter. If my rope is attached to him and to that message and to that promise, he can steady me no matter how strong or how weak I feel like my rope is. Some of you today might feel like, man, my, my faith is is weak. My rope is old or my rope is small or my, I don't even, I don't even know much about my rope, but it just feels weak right now. If you attach whatever you have to the anchor of Christ and to his 
words. You will feel that rope tighten. Some, some ropes strengthen as the waves and the wind come, as it's attached to something that's really, really strong. Christ is a strong anchor. If you attach your rope to that anchor, he's going to steady you no matter what you're going through. Horatius Bonar said this. He said, with a weak faith, last quote I'm going to share, with a weak faith and a fearful heart, many a sinner stands before the Lord. It's not the strength of our faith, but the perfection of Christ's sacrifice that saves. No feebleness of faith, nor dimness of eye, no trembling of hand can change the efficacy of Christ's blood. The strength of our faith can add nothing to it, nor can the weakness of our faith take anything from him. Faith, weak or strong, still reads the promise, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. Then he says, If at times my eye is so dim that I cannot read these words through blinding tears or bewildering trials, faith rests itself on the certain knowledge of the fact that the promise is there and the blood of Christ remains in all its power and suitableness upon the altar, unchanged and unaffected. God says that the believer is justified. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Listen, you might be here today saying, man, I'm not feeling it. Don't worry about what you feel. The promise is there. Attach yourself there. Look there. There's certain knowledge of the fact that the promise is there. There's certain knowledge that the blood of Jesus Christ remains in all of its power right now. Unchanged unaffected, and what God has declared over you as a Christian stands right now. You are justified. You are forgiven. You are made righteous. You are made uh, an heir and, and adopted and loved by God. And what God has done, what God has accomplished, don't think you can undo. He's, he's connected you to himself. And, and with that, let's, let's stand and let's sing and let's... Uh, I don't know, if you want to dance like uh, Tyndale said, you're free to do that. But let's, let's at least sing about this good news that, uh, that God has done for us. This is good and glad tidings of great joy. Let's, let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.